0: This is Dr. Shannon M. Clark with A Doctor Delivers podcast, and today I am discussing new and emerging IVF options with reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist Dr. Sarah Mukowski. Have a listen. Hey, hey! <laughs> I feel like I've not seen you in so long. I know. Well, actually, really haven't seen you long. It. I know. So, right off the bat, we're just going to say it. You, so, what year did you graduate residency?
1: What, year, um, what was that? 2011. So
0: I did train you then because I was faculty in 2008. We trained, well, Sarah trained under me as one of the MFM yeah. faculty when she was an OBGYN resident. And yes. you went on to go where to do your REI fellowship after your ob residency.
1: I went to Los Angeles and okay. I trained at the University of Southern California, so USC.
0: Yeah, and then you came back and you're in Dallas now and you've been there for a right. while, right?
1: Since I finished fellowship in 2014, so it's been yeah. six years. Yeah,
0: Right, and so you're at Dallas IVF in Dallas, Texas, and so uh, just tell everybody how they can find you and your uh, Dallas IVF on social media.
1: So on uh, obviously on Instagram, I'm Sarah Mikowski, MD. Uh, Dallas IVF is Dallas IVF. Um, DallasIVF.com is our website, uh, so you can easily access us there, and we also have a Facebook page of Dallas IVF as well.
0: Yeah, and I've been waiting to do this, uh, to have something with you for a while, and I think this is a really good topic. We're gonna actually do a little bit of a spin on it. We're gonna do a little bit of the history too. Uh, for Absolutely. you guys to kind of start from the beginning. Um, but also I share a lot of stuff that Dr. Mikowski share or post on social media because she has some really good information, especially about uh, family building options for the LGBTQ community. So if you're in Dallas, Texas area or anywhere around, she's a great resource for, for you guys as well. So um, she always has great Instagram posts. So I always give her credit, but I also share. So uh, I love to see what you, what you post. And what actually got me interested is when he posted about InvoCell, which we're going to go into soon but let's start off by you had sent me um kind of an outline about how you thought the topic the talk should go and i and i liked it so you let's talk about a little bit about the history the first ibs cycle believe it or not was in 1978 i was five years old i can't believe it's been that long
1: so so yeah it feels like it's one of those things that it's been a long time but not really when you think about it right so Mm -hmm. you think about how quickly medicine is constantly evolving I mean, this is within one generation. Yeah, it's right? true. This was w- mm-hmm. within your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first IVF baby, like you said, Louise Brown was born in 1978. Um, the first U.S. IVF baby wasn't born until 1981. Wow. Um, and then from there, it was a lot of. I mean, you know how it is in academics, right? Mm-hmm. They're not exactly throwing out funds every time something new sort of hits the scene, and so you know a lot of the people that trained me were converting old broom closets or custodial closets into spaces to have their lab to put mm-hmm. an incubator in to attempt to do IVF. And so we've really come a long way. Um but even the advances that we have while they seem to be these giant leaps, they take a long time. Yeah. Um we didn't have the ability to help sperm fertilize with ICSI or intracytoplasmic sperm injection until 1991. I mean,
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: To me that's mind blowing, right? Mm-hmm. I was I was in grade school um when that happened. So it just feels like, again, there's just so much that has changed and it's an ever evolving field and there's so much research to be done. So while there's still, you know, are a lot of great options, there's still a lot to be learned.
0: Yeah. And, and, and you know, because of the nature of, of a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialty, and also with IVF, there's a lot of medical legal considerations. There's a lot of things that have to be approved because you're dealing with you know, making a baby, and so, right. and rightfully so. And that's why, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I do, from what I've always read and understood to be true, is that the USA, USA or United States has a lot more regulations and they than some of the, maybe other places that uh, around the world. Is
1: that accurate? Um, yes and no, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously there's a lot that's sort of in play as far as from ethical considerations, yes. mm-hmm. as far as, like you said, because we're dealing with embryos that then have the opportunity to become people, that there's yeah. a lot that kind of needs to be regulated with that. But there are other countries too that have even stricter regulations. So for instance, a lot of what we learned about freezing eggs Mm. came from Italy. So Mm -hmm. they had restrictions about creating embryos that weren't necessarily going to be used. They wouldn't allow embryos to be frozen without knowing that they were going to necessarily be using them from Mm. an ethical consideration there. And so it was really a lot of those restrictions that drove the research that now allows us to have... Great quality frozen eggs.
0: Frozen eggs, yeah. Well, I did not know that. So we'll start. Let's actually start with that because that was something I want to talk to you about. I remember back when I, you know, because I, and everybody knows, most people know my story. I didn't meet my husband until I was 38. And I remember probably five years before that, I'm sorry, maybe three to four years before that, one of my good friends who's an REI had suggested freezing my eggs. And I blew it off. I, I blew it off. I was not in the right mindset. And then, of course, once I met my husband, I was like, dang it, I should have frozen my eggs. Um, but vitrification and the, 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 technology back when I would have considered it wasn't really there yet, but what was it about uh, the change in how we're freezing eggs and explain the difference between freezing an egg versus an embryo that allowed it to be more successful? What, what was the, the change there?
1: Absolutely. Well, first off the difference between egg and embryo, embryo is a, fer- is a fertilized egg, right? So the egg is just the female genetic component. It has not mm-hmm. been exposed to sperm. The biggest issues, and if you think about what sperm look like versus what an egg looks like, and I of course have Mm -hmm. a lovely picture here of a mature egg, there's a lot of water content in an egg compared Mm. to a sperm. And so the old methods of freezing, which were fine for sperm, were considered a slow freeze. And so because there wasn't a lot of water content in the head of a sperm, they survived very well in the freeze thaw process. Mm. Eggs however, that fluid could create ice crystals. And so if you think about, you know, as kind of ice or even like a sugar crystal forms, right, it's really jagged. Mm-hmm. So it can cause a lot of damage within the egg cell. And that's why we didn't really see kind of the freeze thaw rates anywhere near the numbers we were seeing for sperm. So the newer method or what's called vitrification is an ultra rapid freezing process. And so what happens is it's kind of almost like an antifreeze process where mm. they're exposed to chemicals that first dehydrate the egg Mm-hmm. And then the ultra rapid cooling doesn't allow for that ice crystal formation. Okay. So that way those frozen eggs are less likely significantly to be damaged compared to the old slow freeze method.
0: So was the damage more when it was getting frozen or when it was getting thawed or both? The egg, A combination
1: for the eggs. of both, right? Okay. So as as those ice crystals form and those jagged edges happen, we're damaging that cellular material within the egg. And then upon the thaw process, right, those are then kind of breaking down. And we're having damage on the
0: egg as the thaw happens as well. Gotcha, gotcha. So the, the process is called vitrification. It was the way they were freezing the eggs that allowed more eggs to survive the thaw, if you will, and Absolutely. the freeze, and have more ability to be fertilized and go on to, to form embryos. So with that being said about egg freezing, um, while we're on the topic, this is babies after 35. I hear more and more women after age 35, and especially around that 40 year old, 40 mark, uh, asking me about freezing their eggs. Of course, my answer is always you just to see an REI and let them give you the advice. But generally, what is the best age to freeze your eggs? And do you, would you ever tell anybody to not do it? Is there any reason why you would tell a woman, especially of advanced age, not to freeze their eggs or not try?
1: So the only reason I would is if they're not even a good candidate for IVF, right? Okay. So we have good markers of ovarian reserve, um, The big thing we can't predict is egg quality, right? Mm -hmm. So as we get older, the number of our eggs decline, and the quality of those remaining eggs is diminishing as well. And all of the tests that we have with current technology, none of them assess egg quality. Mm -hmm. So we have to kind of keep that in mind when we have the discussion. Obviously, the more eggs we have, the greater the chance that someone in that cohort is a good quality egg that could result in a healthy pregnancy. But for instance, if an FSH level is over 17, the statistical probability of having a child with your own eggs, once we hit that number is extraordinarily low. Mm -hmm. So that's when we kind of have to have a really individualized sort of heart to heart about what your family building goals are.
0: And is there a magic number of eggs that is ideal to have to freeze? Sorry, I'm sure there's more women, some women who have to go to go through more than one cycle, uh, process to freeze eggs. Is there a magic number of eggs that you guys prefer to have frozen? For that so again, it's going to be
1: really individualized, okay. right? So mm. based on the patient's age, their markers of ovarian reserve, and what their ideal family looks mm. like. Okay. Um, there are some statistical probability um, websites out there mm. where you basically type in age, number of eggs, and then it gives out the probability that that cohort would result in at least one live mm. birth, or wide probability that it results in two live births, and mm. so forth. So if you tell me you want a really large family, you want three or more kids, we may be talking about multiple cycles to kind of get to those numbers where you're comfortable. Right.
0: Right. Okay. And then of course, you know, there's always that option as you get older and you just, if you want to try to freeze your eggs, you know, I tell them, you know, some similar, I'm not an REI, but similar to what you said, but it, it's, uh, it is an individual thing. And it does depend on how many eggs you get, what your family planning goals are. Um, and I always let caution them. You may need to do more than one cycle to get enough eggs. So as long as they go into it, understanding all that, then they can, help make the decision for themselves as to far, how far to go with the egg freezing process. Would you agree? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to check, t- uh, do you, you mentioned something in your, the thing that you sent me about the lab you, there's so much, listen, you guys are the face of REI when we go see you guys, we see you and we talk, but there's so much behind the scenes. Absolutely. I want to take a minute to give a shout out to the embryologist because I know that that is a huge factor in the success of any RAI center. Why is Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yeah. Why, why is that? Why is embryologist so important or embryologists? I'm sure you might have more than one. So why is that so Absolutely. important? So
1: it's the whole, it's the whole combination of everything, right? So there are minimum standards that are set in place by the FDA and what's, you know, mm-hmm. kind of recommended as far as lab quality and how we keep those embryos kind of separate and the pH and the oxygen tension and all of these things that go into nourishing the embryos, right? We're trying to create that environment like the fallopian tube, but in a lab. So there's the actual lab component and the the science that goes around just the lab, the incubator, like I said, the pH, Mm -hmm. the oxygen tension, making sure that those embryos aren't uh, contaminated in any way, Mm -hmm. shape or form. And then there's the embryologist who's responsible for creating and caring for those embryos and making sure that all of those benchmarks are where they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is a huge component of IVF success. So. You can have the most skilled physician, but if the lab is poor quality, mm-hmm. you're not going to have anywhere near the great success you're gonna have if you have both that are high quality. Right, right, right.
0: And sometimes it, it and it takes, uh, it, it's a whole process. It takes sometimes centers years to get to that point because you you start fresh, you have to go through all those processes. But I do know that I get a lot of questions about, you know, grading of embryos too. Um, I don't know, I'd never wanna know how to grade an embryo. I don't understand, it's too far above my head. But is it the embryologist that grades the embryos and what is the importance of knowing the grade of the embryo
1: so it's the embryologist that grades the embryos and they're looking at a variety of different things in the embryo but it is purely visual all right Mm -hmm. so for instance with Mm -hmm. this particular embryo it's very clear we don't see any kind of dots within here uh, it's very clear what's going to develop into the baby this inner cell mass versus kind of the rest of the cells that become part of the placenta so that's a really high quality embryo but there's a bunch of different things that they're going to be kind of checking off and so a doesn't necessarily mean a the way we think of it when we can grade on a test right so it's really just a difference in kind of what they're looking at the other thing to consider is when it comes to visual grading compared to doing genetic testing, say mm. with pre-implantation genetic testing or PGT, they don't correlate well at all. Mm. So they did a really good study um, where they had taken pictures of a bunch of different embryos and they sent those pictures off to embryologists all over the world. And they asked them to grade them and say, which ones they thought were going to be most likely to result in a live birth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What they didn't tell the embryologist was that they had done testing on all of those embryos and know what the genetics look like. And so not only was there a lot of variation between different embryologists and the grades that they gave, but the difference between what they thought was gonna be the best embryo and what was genetically normal also didn't measure up very well. Mm-hmm. So I tell patients, especially if they're planning on doing PGT anyway, the visual grade of the embryo is yeah. gonna be trumped by the genetics every sure. time. Sure.
0: sure, and so the, you mentioned also PGT. Um, you know, of course, uh, women of advanced maternal age, such as myself, are gonna be encouraged to do that. But I have been told by, you know, other REIs that I've that I've spoken to and also colleagues that um, it's never a bad idea for anyone to do it. Um, it, it, Do you feel the same way? Um, Yes, of a a younger age than maybe not. But is who's the best candidates? Is it for everybody? Is it for certain people? Who are the best people or best candidates for PGT?
1: So the best candidates are gonna be women 37 and older. So mm-hmm. that's, when, that's kind of the magic number where they see that any theoretical risk or issues with doing genetic testing seems to be um, kind of downplayed by the benefit we get from getting that information. In women 37 and under, it's going to really, again, be individualized, right? So what I tend to tell patients, especially if they're thinking about using it for family balancing, so Mm. just learning the genetic gender, right? We learn the X and the Y chromosome, so you can choose boy or girl Mm. um, as far as what we want to put back when it's ready to thaw those embryos. It may not matter for baby number one or baby number two, right? But you might want that information later down the line. Mm. And so in that, if that is the case and you think it might be the case, then it's probably worth doing the genetic testing upfront. So that way we're not exposing the embryos to another freeze-thaw cycle to right. do the testing. So
0: the PGT needs to be done before you freeze it, ideally for the first time.
1: Ideally, it doesn't yeah. have to. Yeah. There's definitely success with embryos that have mm-hmm. been through you know, two freeze-thaw processes, but we're gonna to try to minimize kind of handling yeah. the embryos as yeah. much as possible.
0: Yeah. And so what are some of the new things around genetic testing? We hear about genetics, just the regular chromosomes, if they're abnormal or not. But I know there's a whole lot of things you guys can do uh, for testing for certain genetic disorders or more specified types of disease processes. What are some of the things that can be also tested for along the lines of PGT?
1: So basically, it has to be something that we know is already in play. So either you know the maternal or the paternal side has, is carrying a genetic issue that we can then look for in the embryos. And why it's so important to know that the parent has it first yeah. is because we have to use their tissue or their cells to create a marker.
0: Marker. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So, if you think of kind of going back to the lab stuff, right, mm-hmm. and, and kind of how we expand and make copies of these pieces of DNA, so that way we can make a marker that's specific to that parent. So, right, it's very specific to the gene, and then that parent would be passing on to the embryo. And that way, then we can screen the embryo for that very specific genetic defect. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And that's something I, I know I have a couple of friends that are going through that now with some kind of rare genetic disorders that one or one of the partners has. So that is a process that starts with sometimes they even go into the family tree as well. Right. It, depending on what it is. So there are things that can be tested for other than just the routine chromosomes and the sex of the baby. Um, so that's also, and that's becoming more and more um, evolving. I mean, more, what you guys are able to do as far as the testing um, for those types of things is is getting even more when I went through it is more uh, evolved
1: since then. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I caution you mentioned kind of with egg freezing. I'm sure you're familiar that, you know, everyone, everyone of reproductive age is recommended to be screened for genetic issues that they may or may not have a family history of, or things that are just kind of common enough in the gene pool Mm. that they could have an affected child. And while our genes aren't expected to change with time, what can change is the test. Right? Mm. So for instance, with cystic fibrosis, we may have only been testing for about a hundred different variants of cystic fibrosis, say five or 10 mm-hmm. years ago, but now we're testing for over 200 yeah. variants, yeah. yeah, so it's just a matter of kind of being aware of what's out there and what mm-hmm. can be tested for, and then therefore what can be screened for in the embryo.
0: Yeah, and so for those women who are in, or couples um, or individuals who are wanting to determine whether or not they need to be screened for something beyond what PGT traditionally offers, Is that something that a genetic counselor, you you guys work with genetic counselors and they could talk to them to see if there's anything that needs to be tested for, how does that process work?
1: So typically it's based on just kind of ethnicity, family history, Mm -hmm. those types of things. But there are these kind of super panels that are out there that can screen for Mm -hmm. hundreds of different types of mutations, largely Mm -hmm. for recessive disorders. And that's something you know. I typically caution: if it's something that you want to know as much information as possible, mm. then that's the size test for you. Mm. If you're comfortable with just kind of what's the basic recommendation, gotcha. that's fine too. But especially if we're planning on going through IVF in the first place, right? The mm-hmm. more things we screen for, the more likely yeah. something's going to be positive. that's kind of a stressful factor. Now we have to test your partner to see if they're all, mm-hmm. you're also a carrier before we have that one in four chance of an affected mm-hmm. child. Um, but again. If you're you know, making the big investment to go through IVS yeah. and do yeah. genetic testing in the first place, a lot of the companies that offer that initial screening offer free genetic counseling. So if you mm-hmm. do end up positive for something, they have a genetic counselor that's going to go through what those risks look like for you as well as helping with some of the financial burden that goes with doing the genetic testing for that particular marker.
0: Right, and so the reason why I'm bringing this up is because that is not necessarily new, but it is emerging. It's something that's constantly evolving and and what is available for uh, people to consider for testing, especially along the lines of PGT is expanding. So it is a conversation. Do you find that it's uh, becoming more um, couples or individuals are more interested in learning about that with your IVF counseling as well than say when you first started? doing uh,
1: RBF? I think it's pretty mixed. Um, mm-hmm. I think initially a lot of times people were already doing things like 23 and Me, which mm. obviously is not necessarily recommended as, as a physician right. and medicine right. side of things. But right. um, so they, there is definitely an interest yeah. in it. But then there are the other people who are staunchly against it. Right? Gotcha. So there's gotcha, kind of yeah. always that wide spectrum when it comes right, to right. agility treatments.
0: And one of the other things you talked about was better blastulation along with the laboratory thing. What does, what does that mean? What does better blastulation, cause I, I hear know what a blastula is, but what does that mean?
1: So again, kind of thinking back in the history of IVF, right, as things have evolved, our ability to sort of grow embryos further and further out mm-hmm. has gotten better. So typically, even when I was in training, we were still looking at largely using what we consider day three embryos. Mm-hmm. And they're only about eight cells. So at Mm -hmm. that point, it's really hard to determine what's going to develop into the baby
0: part, what's going to
1: become the placenta, again, getting a better idea of the quality of that embryo. And so now things have really gotten pushed out to what's considered the blastocyst stage, where there's about 150 cells. Mm -hmm. And again, it's really clear there what's going to develop into the baby portion and what's going to become the placenta Mm -hmm. and getting an idea sort of of the grade there based on Mm -hmm. those couple of things. And so one of the big things that sort of has changed the lab and why we were able to kind of push forward to those blastocysts, mm-hmm. which is anywhere from day five, six, maybe even day seven of development, um, is changing kind of the media. So instead of doing kind of multi-step where we're changing out the media based on kind of what we think the embryo needs at that stage, we now have just single steps so we don't mm-hmm. have to disturb them as much. And we've also changed oxygen tension. So initially, we were planning, the idea was, well, we want the oxygen tension at what we see in the atmosphere, right, Mm -hmm. which is around 20%. The reality is embryos do better at around 5%. So low Mm -hmm. oxygen tension. So there's been a lot of changes that have happened on the lab side of things that have really allowed the embryos to grow better in the dish. So Mm -hmm. we have better quality embryos and more embryos than to sample from.
0: Sure. sure. So, and so again, it goes along with the lab and I give kudos. There's so many people in the lab. I can't name them all, but kudos to the labs that do this because the, those guys are brilliant and girls they're brilliant. So I, uh, I, I like the science side of it, but it's something that we, it's not always discussed. No. So I, I do want to give kudos to them because they're, they're the, the, the brains behind all of this. They're definitely they're doing. Backbone, yeah, they sure. are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about, we already talked about vitrification and, and PGT, but this invo cell, Okay, listen. I know what it looks like. I still cannot wrap my brain around it. So I need InvoCell is new and emerging for sure. It's considered I I, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's one of the lower cost IVF options. Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Start from the top and make me understand.
1: Okay. So (laughs) InfoCell is an old concept made new again, right? The idea that again we're trying to mimic what's happening in the body in the lab, right? Historically, when we try to do that, as far as creating some sort of vessel to put in the vagina, so we're having the same kind of degree of movement and changes in body temperature and those sorts of things, the Mm. big issue is run into is contamination.
0: Mm.
1: So InvoCell is a new kind of type of material that helps minimize contamination. And it's this champagne cork looking thing here. And I say champagne cork because it is literally Mm, like a champagne. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. right. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It has an outer chamber and an inner chamber. Mm-hmm. All right. And again, so that's going to help minimize any potential contamination. What it does is it allows for there to be a lower cost of IVF because we are taking out the laboratory component side of things.
0: Largely. So wait, so
1: wait, you retrieve the eggs, mm-hmm.
0: right? And yep. you just put the eggs in there. Or you put the eggs in there with the sperm.
1: Eggs and sperm go in. Okay. So fertilization okay. is still happening in the woman's body. Mm. And the original kind of nourishment of those embryos up until day five is still happening in the body. Mm-hmm. About at that day five mark, we take the device out of the vagina, hand it off to the embryologists who under the microscope take into account all the eggs that went inside of that device in the first place mm-hmm. and kind of assess what happened. There may be some eggs that didn't fertilize and just died off. Just like traditional IVF, there are going to be embryos that started and just didn't finish de- developing. So they died mm-hmm. off kind of in the media. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully we've got good looking blastocysts to put back inside the uterus. So it'd be a fresh embryo transfer. That's what I was gonna
0: ask you. So yeah, it's those, if you do cell, it's not gonna be, embryos are not gonna be frozen.
1: Well, the, or, there will definitely be, the plan is for a fresh transfer. Now, if okay. there's extra embryos, you can pay to have those frozen, Frozen. Right? Gotcha. So mm-hmm. that you can have the op- opportunity to use those embryos if not successful for the next go around or mm-hmm. for siblings in the future.
0: Is there a maximum amount of eggs that can be put in there or a minimum amount of eggs that can be put in the MSL?
1: It varies by program. Mm-hmm. Um, we've kind of found for us what works is about 12 eggs, right? So just like kind of a tank of gas, right? You can okay. only go so far in yeah, a okay. tank. Doesn't matter how good quality the gas is, right? You're not going to be able mm-hmm. to go indefinitely. Mm-hmm. This is a pretty small volume that we mm-hmm. can put in here. So what happens is the eggs are incubated with the sperm for five minutes. So we don't put the whole semen specimen in this little component. And that way, if you kind of think about the fact that those eggs are still surrounded in that cloud of cells that had been nourishing them as part of the follicle, mm-hmm. the, eggs get, the sperm get kind of embedded in that cloud of cells. Mm-hmm. So that way there's sperm around the egg, but fertilization hasn't quite happened yet. Mm-hmm. But Those should be some of the better quality sperm. And then we put all 12 of those eggs with the cumulative orifice or the, that cloud of, of cells, as well as the sperm in some media, in that inner chamber.
0: Mm-hmm. And that that's, st- you said it stays in the in the vagina for five days. Mm-hmm. Okay. Five days max. And so I heard where I had initially heard about this was with, with a lesbian couple mm-hmm. where one woman was got the eggs and then her partner Listen had the MSL for, so no, so so she gets to carry or does it,
1: or she Do does, oh, does same sex female couples to both carry the same baby.
0: Right. So she, but the one partner carries it for the five days and then takes it out and then the eggs go back into the original uh, person. together. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I was like, how is that? That is crazy. I thought it was like some kind of, uh, you know, I don't know what, uh, Sounds very made sci-fi. up story. It does yeah. sound very sci-fi. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool that, uh, you, uh yeah, that's possible for any couple, but, yeah, so for 5 days and then the eggs go back and then you transfer uh the embryo back into uh the the original the original
1: uterus. The original uterus. Right. So eggs so, and uterus are going to go together.
0: Yeah, but it's going to be part of a fresh embryo transfer is what's important. And then any leftover eggs are going to be frozen. Or sorry, okay. embryos. 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 Uh, mm-hmm. You're right. And, okay. Any of leftover embryos are going to be frozen. So that's that's really really cool. So do you can you give an by a, like an idea of what is the difference in the cost between That and and a traditional IVF cycle, like how much money would it save?
1: So it can be about half the cost. Okay. So we're not—we're obviously then not going to be able to do things like ICSI or help the sperm fertilize. Like I said, we're just kind of pouring some of those sperm on there and hoping that the best quality ones are going to be close to the egg when we put them in the in the device. Mm -hmm. Um, we're taking out things like PGT, that sort of thing, because again, we're growing those embryos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Maybe even day seven. So if you're going to be doing that anyway, you might as well just start. From the dish from the get-go.
0: Okay. Okay. So
1: it can be, we're typically quoting the InvoCell cycles at around $6,000.
0: Okay. So again, no PGT, no ICSI, any other things that you cannot do
1: with InvoCell? Um, Those would be the big ones. And if you're planning on doing, you know, a frozen embryo transfer from the Mm -hmm. get-go, then that may have an additional cost to it. Mm -hmm. Because again, the idea is really for those couples who don't have IVF coverage, who are really good candidates for IVF, um, say maybe there's a tubal ligation or something like yeah, that, yeah, where they just yeah. want one more kid, right? So this yeah. is going to be the most cost effective for those mm-hmm. women that have had their tubes tied, um, who may not necessarily want to undergo reversing their tubal yeah, or yeah. doing full blown IVF. Um, so it's a really well. Since good you
0: thing. brought it up, the tubal reversal—that's a very very common question I get. Um, okay. I don't know. I don't know what question I'm trying to ask here, but I would say that what people ask me is should they get their tubes reversed to tube- try to get their tubal reversed versus going to IVF? Because if your tubes are tied, uh, what's the layman's term? If you've had a tubal ligation or any kind of, uh, s- tubal sterilization technique, the idea is that you go into it knowing that it's going to be permanent. Okay. Um, yes, women, there have been failed, uh, tubal ligations, but that's very rare. Um, it is considered a permanent procedure, but then say later on, she's changed her mind or has a new partner, Mm -hmm. um, and decides that, you know, should I do the tubal reversal or should I do IVF? Now I'm pretty sure the tubal reversals could be cheaper but the success rate yes or no
1: maybe they're they're apples and oranges so it depends on how it's done right Right. so if it's something that requires um if you're using you know an operative microscope it is a mini laparotomy so it is a a small incision on the abdomen but you may end up then being in the hospital overnight okay and so most insurance companies while they may have covered having your tubes tied in the first place they won't cover that part don't cover the reversal Mm and so then you're on the hook for an overnight stay in the hospital which can be really expensive Um, Again, it's apples and oranges comparing the number of times you have the opportunity to get pregnant, right? So if the tubal reversal is successful, you have as many times as you have ovulation cycles, right? right, right. Potentially get pregnant versus that one IVF cycle. It's usually, again, it's a very individualized conversation as far as what are your overall family building goals? Are we looking at just one more child, are we looking at multiple children? What are your plans for birth control after you finish growing your family? Those kinds of things. Um, and then kind of the cost benefit analysis. Yeah,
0: and I, and I do want to encourage women and I am in no way taking anything ar- away from what general OBGYNs can do because there are many general OBGYNs who can do uh, uh, certain things regarding fertility treatments or tubal reversals. However, I do think, and this is just me, I do think that if that is consideration, you should always at least get a consult with someone like Dr. Mukowski, because they might ask other questions and help you tease out the right way to go either way. Um, it doesn't mean you have to do that, but you can still stay with your general OBGYN, but at least get that second opinion. That's sure. what I'm going to say about that. I think um, I hear a lot, you know, that that's not being done. And I, do, and I fully support that at, at least for consultation, Absolutely. especially for doing something like that. Um, I also think that there is a common misconception that women feel that they go to an RAI specialist that you're going to write out a prescription for IDF and be like, that's the only thing option you have. And I say every chance I get, that is simply not true. Uh, REI docs such as Dr. Mikowski can do a lot of things. If they can get you pregnant without doing IVF, that's what they want to do. So they understand uh, that there's other ways that they can help you besides just doing IVF. It's not like they're just going to say that's the only option you have. When can I sign you up? So just it's always helpful to just go and talk to someone such as Dr. Mikowski, uh, any RAI doc about what situation you're in before you ultimately make that decision about which Absolutely. way you're going to go.
1: I've, every new yeah. patient consult I have, but at the end, we are going through a ladder of different yeah. treatment options. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter of what you're comfortable with, right? To yes. so be as aggressive as you want or as yeah. conservative as you want, you know, assuming that we have those options, right? If your tubes are tied while well, doing insemination or IUI isn't really something that's going to be worthwhile. Right. But we're going to have that discussion. We're going to talk about pros and cons of the options yeah. that you do have to you. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And it's, and you could always get consultations with REI docs. Um, and they can give you a lot of good information. I've heard of many times where patients went for consultation. It was something very minor that they had to tweak and got, took the advice from the doc and were successful. So Absolutely. Going to see an REI does not sign you up for IVF. I promise you, that's not what what it is. (laughs) So again, and I go on my little diatribe here, but I, every chance I get, I always put that out there. Um, I think it's important for women to understand that. Um, we talked about InvoCell. Um, now this other, y'all are getting so sci-fi on me. I can't even, I can't even go there. Um, what is this artificial intelligence thing that's going on?
1: It's a, what is
0: that about helping to individualize someone's chances sure. of having a live birth? What is it?
1: So it's a company called Unify. Okay. And the idea is it is artificial intelligence and they are individualized to each practice that offers them. Mm. So what happens is for instance, we have contracted with Unify. They have basically combed mm. all of our data for years and years and years to look at our success rates and the types of patients that we see. And it takes into account a variety of things how long you've been trying your age your markers of ovarian reserve the semen analysis any previous pregnancies your bmi all of these things that can have an impact and they have a platform with their own kind of you know we'll call it you know their their own yeah. kind of computer magic right yeah. that things get weighed kind of differently depending on what it is and then after we sort of plug in all of the the pieces of the homework that we may assign kind of after that first initial consultation it spits out your own individualized chance of success doing IVF with our practice. That's crazy. And so from there, then we can get sort of, once I have that ladder of different options, we fill in the blanks, right? So we'll start then with our most aggressive, if we're doing IVF with genetic testing, this yeah. is that percent. Okay. And then we just kind of work our way backwards. What do mm-hmm. we think it's going to be You know, with, with, if we add shots and IUI, or if we do InvoCell, or if we're just going to do you know Clomid or Letrozole? Because again, as we kind of work our way up the ladder, we are gonna get more successful, right? Sure. It's just yeah. the nature of the mm-hmm. beast, right? Again, with IUI and IVF, same thing, apples and oranges, right? Mm-hmm. IVF, we know sperm and egg got together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We know fertilization happened. Mm-hmm. We know that embryo started dividing appropriately.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If we do genetic testing, we know it has two copies and only two copies of its chromosomes. Mm-hmm. And we know it made it into the uterus, right? And those are all things we can't yeah. account for when we do IUI, mm-hmm. and if those things are happening, we don't know where things fall apart, where we get a lot of information with IVF. So it's really, I know you said that we, we don't push IVF, but the reality is for most couples, it's going to give you your best chance of success because we know those mm-hmm. things are occurring.
0: Yeah. but I, what, what I mean by that is that you, you, you do have the data there, you know, and, and women can find that with a SART calculator. I know that's something they have access to where they can put in some of that information you mentioned, right. but Unify takes it even uh, several steps so it, further. It takes
1: into account all of those things. Yeah. So like. Your age, your BMI, your FSH, your AMH, previous pregnancies, those kinds of things. Like I said, it takes into account the semen analysis and his mm-hmm. side of things, takes into account mm-hmm. whether or not either of you have been smokers at any point. Yeah. And it literally spits out what your chances of success are gonna be. So this is just an example. So but-
0: let me ask you this. Does do you does a couple or an individual do they pay for that technology? No. Or are you guys we, you guys I, have- we
1: offer that to every patient? We oh, think awesome. it is important to have these these couples informed. Mm-hmm. before they go and make the kind of financial emotional investment mm-hmm. that fertility is. And, and then just to give
0: an example, you know, look, I went through five cycles of IVF at between age 40 and, uh, and a half to 42 and a half. Um, earlier on my doc recommended egg donor. Now I wasn't there. Why did he That's do fine. that? And this is it's expensive. Yes, of course it's expensive, but I wasn't there yet mentally, but he, he said to me and I remember, if you want the, the quickest and most successful chance you have of having a baby is with egg donor based on these factors. So that's what REIs do. It's, you know, it's how, how much time do, are you willing to invest? How many, what links are you willing to go? Of course having IVF could be the most successful route, but it doesn't mean you have to go straight to that, but that's their job is to look at you and you know how you're choosing what timeline you're on how many kids you want what's going on with you as an individual to let you know what the statistics show and that's where the, the unify uh, it helps to come in because it takes in so many factors right absolutely and, yeah, it's, yeah. and
1: sometimes it's almost you know it's a surprise to me even sometimes the things yeah. that it spits out but yeah i've seen people whose chances of success are over 70 percent yeah yeah so we yeah. quote egg donors typically around a 60 percent chance to, yeah just historically from what we see you know over the years of women who use egg donors right? These, those eggs should be young, healthy, good quality. Um, But some of these women have higher chances of success using their own eggs than seeing an egg donor. So Mm -hmm. there's just a lot that goes into it.
0: I I think that's really cool. I think, uh, and so you're saying that it could tell, you know, based on IBF with or without egg donor, whether or without donor sperm they talk about whether or not they did IUI they did inval cell. They kind of, but I think the, the also important thing is it looks at itch, it, it. what Unify puts out for your center is not going to be the same as what it puts out Correct. for the center down the road. So they Correct. use all the statistics from that center. And I do know that REI centers do keep a lot of statistics, keep a lot of data because mm-hmm. it's important for them to know that um, for their own education, but to make their own improvements. So, you know, and there, is there a certain people ask me this all the time or, are each if is it is each fertility center required to report their statistics to yeah. some place yes the answer no? is no they're okay. not
1: required to okay and so you know there's a lot that kind of goes into that Yep. you know is why are they not reporting are they a mm-hmm. new center and they just don't have the data to report or are they choosing not to disclose their data mm-hmm. um, the other component of that is too. as with anything when it comes to statistics things can be massaged right so mm-hmm. If you're a center with really high success rates, are you excluding patients who are poor candidates from allowing to do treatments at your center in the first place? So there's just a lot that goes into the start, um, whereas Unify is really just going to be you and that particular center
0: right 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 so yeah the, and i get i get asked that question too so i did i wasn't for sure about whether or not it was required but i do know that centers do volunteer and it's to Sart, right the s-a-r-t yes. What's that the society for assisted reproductive technology that's yes. where kind of they keep all this the, the governing re- yeah.
1: regulating bodies
0: yep. right 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 okay so let's go into this we have some time i get a lot of questions and a lot of things about this is i want twins <laughs> and um I get it. Twins are cute. and I'm just going to s- tell my own personal experience. I, uh, went through five cycles of IVF. I had egg donor. I had a miscarriage of my own. I had a failed embryo transfer with an, the one chromosomally normal, chromosomally normal, uh, embryo I did get from my body. Then I went to egg donor. I failed a transfer of two, uh, embryos and then was successful with the second transfer of two. Um, Yes, I ended up with twins, and I know people say that's easy for me to, to say that what I'm getting ready to say is um, as an individual, as a professional, and as a person, I am an advocate for single embryo transfer. And well, you can go into that from your side, too, because I almost lost them. I almost ended up losing both of them. I was 20 weeks, 21 weeks, and I had no cervix left. And as an MFM, I know what that meant, and I'm very, very lucky that I did not lose both of my babies. So that's how I feel personally and professionally, and I'm not an REI doc. But what is the thought behind um, single embryo transfer?
1: So historically, right, again, this is a relatively new field Mm
0: -hmm. compared
1: to say you know, orthopedics or Mm -hmm. obstetrics and gynecology in general, right? That the issue is as technology has gotten better and success Mm -hmm. has gotten higher and higher, we are now at a point where the risks of transferring to outweigh the benefits. Mm -hmm. All right, so we actually see the higher chance of live birth, so taking home a baby, is higher one at a time
0: mm-hmm. than putting
1: two back, and it's because mm-hmm. of, of cases just like yours, where unfortunately the coin flipped in the other direction and the babies were lost.
0: Mm-hmm. And I and I'll, I will also say this, and I'm not scaring anybody. Um, some of the most complications I see are are with twins, whether by IVF or not. Um, so, uh, again, I, and I've also been criticized a little bit for, well, it's easy for you to say, cause you have two babies, but I almost didn't. And so that's why anytime I get a chance to talk about, especially with someone such as yourself about why single embryo transfer is recommended. I get, yeah, go ahead.
1: Especially now with PGT. So yeah. the American society of reproductive medicine or ASRM very strongly recommends one embryo at a time when we know they're genetically normal. And again, that's yeah. because internally we're seeing numbers at about 70% chance yeah. of success with that. So again, mm-hmm. that's higher than say using an egg donor. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime we put back one, anything from zero to two can happen. And anytime mm-hmm. we put back two, anything from zero to four can happen. Mm-hmm. So that risk just isn't worth it, right? We're not yep. designed mm-hmm. to carry a litter. The more we're yeah. pregnant with, the risks go up exponentially. I know you know this as mm-hmm. a maternal fetal specialist, mm-hmm. um, but that's something really important. And I know a lot of couples feel like, well, I'm going to get the most bang for my buck. I'm going to get mm-hmm. two babies out of this one cycle.
0: But mm-hmm. the reality
1: is, in the yep. long run, it isn't necessarily cheaper, and it could be life more <clears throat> or right.
0: So is there any thought that behind, and I don't know where I heard this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is there any thought, you, you laid out very well why single embryo transfer is recommended. And is there any thought that if you put two, that if one of the embryos is not ideal, that it could affect the implantation of the other one?
1: There's been some theory about that. There's also kind of been theory on the other way, right? So if they're kind of Siblings sort of co-cultured together, mm-hmm. that maybe that has a positive impact. But again, kind of what we're seeing with current technology, any risk of putting back two in most cases is mm-hmm. not worth it. Yeah. Um, now, granted, there are going to be some exceptions to that. So, as we talked about before, right, as we get older, the number yeah. of mm-hmm. eggs declines and the quality of those eggs diminishes. So, if we're not able to do genetic testing for some reason, or if someone doesn't want to do that, we're going to be rolling the dice and trying again, individualizing things. Yeah. That okay. Well, if if we have two embryos the likelihood that both of them are genetically normal at say 40 is pretty low. So in that case, it may be worth putting back two if mm-hmm, we're not mm-hmm, doing the genetic mm-hmm, testing because mm-hmm. again, we're kind of, we're kind of gambling really, mm-hmm. right? We're one of, we're hoping that at least one of them sticks and is healthy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, re- the th- uh, reason why we did two is because I had had failed transfers what? and there was no, I did not for one think that I was ever going to get two. I was going to be, I was uh, hoping that I would even get one. Uh, and when it turned out, I had to be honest with you, when I found I was having twins, I was terrified
1: I'm sure. <laughs> because I know, I
0: know what happens and it did happen. And I uh, was very well, and I tried to not let my husband in on it too much, but to be honest, <laughs> that I'll had tell to you be how,
1: extremely big secret to keep. <laughs>
0: right, well, I'll tell you how on it, how, how much I knew this was going to happen to me as a maternal fetal medicine specialist. And I deal with this with twins all the time is his, we had just gotten found out we were mm-hmm. pregnant. And his enrollment for his insurance came up, and I said to him, You need to put me on your insurance. <laughs> I did. I said, Because I wanted dual coverage. Yeah. And I, because I knew what was going to happen, and I was right.
1: But it's not and, cheaper in the long run.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I, and I knew it was going to happen. And so we, and he was like, Why? Wow, you, you, you have insurance. Like, just put me on. <laughs> yeah. Good choice. Good <laughs> call. <in> <laughs> it was a good call, but you know, um, I, I was worried. And thankfully it worked out for me and it does work out for a lot of women, but in some it doesn't. So I long story short is make sure you talk to your RAI about um, you know, the, the pros and cons of those. they should be able to so give you make you those it,
1: and be very informed right. with it. Right. This isn't yeah. something that's, that's should be magical or they just because yeah. they told you to there is very strong science behind that.
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So those were the main things I wanted to talk to you about. Oh, uh, no, one more thing I want to talk to you about IUI. <laughs> okay. Cause, uh, uh, and I, I, uh, it's very well lit up on in neon that I'm a maternal fetal medicine specialist, but the most questions I get are about <laughs> REI topics. So I send them in the right direction or I'll just say, I have no idea what to tell you. Okay. And I, Okay. But the other question I get, and I see this all the time, and I have my own personal opinions on this, are round after round after round after round of IUIs. I'm talking women are getting five, six, seven, eight rounds of IUIs, and then they ask me what they should do. And most of the time when I see this, and again, I mean no harm by saying this, is with the the generalists. They're doing a lot of IUIs. At what point should uh, a... should someone such as yourself be sought or get a second opinion? Like, is there a magic number of IUIs? Because what I found is that a lot of them end up spending so much money on IUIs, they deplete their resources absolutely and now they can't do IVF. And I wish there was a, I don't think there's an answer. You say after two and a half cycles of IUI, you need to no. but when should and they start? And it's going
1: yeah. wa- to depend yeah. on why we're doing IUI in the first place. Yes. Okay. But statistically. Yeah. We expect someone who will get pregnant with a given treatment to do so within three cycles. Right? So X women are going to get pregnant within month one. Within two months, it's going to be X plus Y. And within three months, it's going to be X plus Y plus Z. Mm-hmm. And after that, it just levels off. There's not really any statistical benefit to continuing to do the same thing over and over and mm-hmm. over
0: and over again. Yeah. And I think that, you know, they, what a lot of people get caught up on is the the cost. Sure. And and the fear. Nobody wants to be in my office. I get that. I don't take it personally. It's okay. It it is. And then, um, then I hear so many women came back and say, you know, I've been through like my seventh or sixth and now I don't have any, phones left. And I, and I get that it's, uh, sometimes you don't realize it until you're
1: way on the other side. Well, and some of that too, yeah. we talk, you know, talked about the LGBTQ community. Mm. Some of that is their insurance benefits won't cover unless they've been exposed to sperm for 12 months. Mm. Well, a vial sperm mm. is almost a thousand dollars. You really want someone to spend $12,000 yeah. in sperm before they can get access to mm-hmm. any benefits. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of, when, again, it's very individualized where we have that discussion, you know, Is it worth that? How many kids do you want? Do you guys want to use the same eggs as sperm? Those types of things. Again, maybe then doing something like InvoCell is the most cost-effective way of growing your family.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's, again, I do advocate for anyone to see uh, Dr. Mikowski or any other REI because they know how to lay it out and say, this is what your decision tree might look like. You have to make the decision, but this is what the tree looks like. You got to decide what's best for you. It's different for everybody. Yeah. It's different for everybody. So having someone that can actually lay that out for you. And I remember when I went to see my friend, the the REI, and he put out my decision tree and my husband was like, what the, (laughs) like there's no decisions here. We, and then, then, you know, we didn't, I, I, you know, I didn't, I had already had a miscarriage and I was almost 41 and he said, listen, your best shot is to do IVF and again he had encouraged me earlier on to do egg donor but i i wasn't there Actually, yet just in, think it, about it, yeah. it just think of about in, it, yeah the back in your mind yeah yeah so that's what the, it's it's important to get all those things teased out so you can make the best decision for you uh, and as a couple uh um, you know what links you're willing to go and also factoring in the cost so um i am a, a huge advocate for seeing an rei even if as in a consultation because um a lot of times they um look at a lot more, a lot of different factors that some other people would not look at. So
1: absolutely. I mean, yeah. I tell, I tell my patients, right. When I get literature, right. When I get the green mm. journal or I, or I get um, FNS, I'm not looking at articles about C-sections and safety of <laughs> X, Y, and Z and pregnancy, right. I'm only looking for the fertility articles because that's me and my patients. So that's all I do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Good, I'm you're not the only one because I don't look at the fertility stuff. <laughs> I like, well, I'm like,
1: not af- I'm not like, afraid to say that. I mean, it's the truth, right? I mean, yeah, every once in a while, something sounds interesting, and I'm like, that's really cool. Or yeah, if you, yeah. you published, I'm like, ooh, what's Shannon up to? Okay. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I
0: know. Guess, like, no, I mean, but with that being said, though, <laughs> there's so much new information coming out there. Every article that comes out doesn't mean we're changing our practice. Correct. We decide based on what's out, you know, uh, a lot of times we need more information before we decide to change things. Otherwise, uh, we'd be changing what we do every day based on an article that came out. So Absolutely. that's our job is to read the latest research and determine, you know, if and when we're going to implement anything. So. That's Absolutely. part of our job. Reading is always a part of our job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it never ends.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate your time. I'm going to close here. I don't, I think everybody's just listening. Most of my, I will say most of my, um, questions and comments come after okay. this. So don't be surprised if they DM you. you right. can, let me see. Anyway, no, uh, that you can DM. It's uh, what's what is your Instagram handle again? Sarah Mukowski MD. And, uh, she works at Dallas IBF and that it's Dallas IBF on, uh, uh Instagram too, right? Correct. us IVF. If you could also send messages to me, and I can forward you, uh, you know, send them on to Sarah or if I if I can't answer them. But. I thank you very much for all the information you're putting out there. You put out really good content, and thanks. you're very helpful. And thanks for giving me content to put out there. <laughs> of
1: course, happy to. I mean, we're all, we're all on the same.
0: team. We are on the same team, so I appreciate. It. Enjoy the rest of your day. It's raining and stormy like here. Hopefully, it's not like that in Dallas. No, but, it's actually quite gorgeous. Sorry. No, it's not. We're getting. Was it? I don't even know what storm it is now, but whatever. We're getting, yeah, we're so. into the
1: Greek alphabet, which I know I we're in beta.
0: I'm like, yeah. Last time I know her we were on Laura and Marco, but now we're already in beta. So apparently, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, and of I'm course. sure we'll chat again. Absolutely. Good to see you.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Now listen to the next episode on LGBTQIA family building.